dull pain or uh, um, emotional stress. So I remember doing things like you know, learning, like going to the dentists and, and not having anesthetics. So I can practice with the pain, physical pain. So I remember uh, when I had these two front teeth were are capped and uh, years ago in Chitters, I went to the, the cap, one of the caps fell off. So it's just kind of gaping hole here. And, uh, and the, I didn't have very good caps on my teeth, so somebody offered to to send me to dentists and have really nice uh, porcelain, high-quality caps put on. It would be nice to have, have a nice smile again. One of these American smiles, you know, where all the teeth are even and white. And so, uh, before that, the, the two teeth had gotten rather grotty-looking, old caps, and one, one that kept slipping out. I remember I was supposed to give a talk in somewhere in London and the cap kept falling off. <laughs> then the, uh, so I went to this dentist in Midhurst and I laid back in the dental chair and there's, there was Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs on the ceiling. <laughs> <laughs> so I lay back in this chair and looked up at Snow White and Seven Dwarfs and the dentist asked me if I wanted, uh, <laughs> I wanted an injection and I said, no, no. So anyway, proceeded and, and to get, the, the teeth were broken uh, when I was in the Navy, I was in a, I was in a fight and somebody knocked my two front teeth broke them. Yeah. So, that was, uh, so, <laughs> so they were broken, but they still had the roots there, and, uh, and uh, so that the, they could, they were still good teeth, but the, they're, they're both badly broken. And in the Navy, they kind of uh, filed them down and put on kind of half caps that didn't look very good. And so then uh, this was putting on these porcelain ones. They had to file these teeth down, right down to the roots. And the, the roots were exposed. And I remember they did one one day. And I'm looking up at Snow White, Seven Dwarfs, and practicing, going into the silence of the mind. Just staying there in the, the sound of silence. While this, uh, while this dentist was drilling away, filing away on my teeth. And it is quite painful actually, but, but I realized that if I kept the mind in the state of that emptiness, that I didn't suffer. I still could feel, wasn't I? I felt it, everything. But I wasn't, the real suffering was the, uh, the anxiety, the aversion to the pain. This became very clear. The second day, 
I had to go back. I found physically my body didn't want to go. Let me understand that the body also has its own, you know, is a mind of its own. Uh, because I had to kind of, it seemed like I had to make my body go there because it didn't want to go through that again. But uh, the second day I did the same thing. And, and it was quite, quite a, I felt quite proud of myself that, that I could actually, that I could see that I could endure things that before I, I, were, I couldn't, I thought I could never bear. Like I used to dread going to the dentist. And, and I hated that, 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 the drilling and all that stuff they do in your mouth. And now they've got the dentist here in Berkhamsted, is a whiz, he's wonderful. He's got all kinds of modern equipment, but even back then, in the, the, they, did, they didn't have all these super drills. <coughs> and this is, this is another thing to contemplate, just the physical pain, physical discomfort, as experience and mindfulness with it. What is when is there suffering and non-suffering, even when there's physical pain? So you begin to, to really notice the difference between painful sensation that exists and suffering that you create out of ignorance. Well, this is mindfulness, isn't it? It's putting it to a test so that you can, you can to see clearly what, what the causes of suffering are. Not, not the drilling, not the, not the uh, bare nerves in the teeth, uh, and the, uh, the painful uh, uh, sensation, but the suffering that I experienced was the fear, the, the kind of anticipation, you know, this anticipating, oh God, and you know this resistance to the pain, to the to the experience, the resistance, anticipation. These were what I was creating in my mind. When I began to relax into the silence of the mind, this letting go into that, sustaining that, then then there's uh, this, ten this tenseness, this resistance and anticipation would would stop. I could let go of that. So then there was just the pure sensation, still hurt, but there was no suffering. Now how many of you can see the difference, you know, in your own life? Know the difference between, you think if you're, if you're physically painful then you're suffering because you, you know, there's so much resistance and aversion to physical pain. The same with emotional pain. And it's more difficult than physical, for me anyway. Emotional pain, emotional stress. Because it's so overwhelming, you know, even physical things are, um, I find easier to bear, to deal with. So, the uh, where emotional stress is, is tends to overwhelm the mind. So this is where with, with uh, developing awareness around emotions that you're having is, is to develop this silence, this sound of silence, this kind of spaciousness, of this emptiness of the mind, 
where the emotion is, is accepted rather than followed or resisted. So the two extremes are indulging or re in resisting. Now when we, when we, in the Tamajaka Sutta, the Buddha said, I teach the middle way between the two extremes, Gama Sukhalikana Yoga, which is the way of indulgence, Atta Kinamatana Yoga, which is the way of resistance. So this, uh, this also, is, uh, Ajahn Chah would use these terms over and over again. I'd hear them. Even when I couldn't understand Thai very well, I'd hear Gama Sukhalikana Yoga, Atta Kinamatana Yoga. Because in Thai, they, they, they use a lot of the Pali and, and with mixed with the Thai words. <coughs> so then applying this to, you know, it seemed like, like uh, with emotional experience. One thing I found, we were talking about this this morning the, at, at the Gruel meeting, the uh, emotional feeling, like the mood of the mind is, uh, you know, you feel it in your guts or you feel it like churning in your, in your guts or, or sadness or loneliness in your heart or whatever. You're feeling uh, these, these, uh, these emotions that, that, that we either indulge in or we resist, we try to suppress. So, in uh, terms of mindfulness, you're not you're not either indulging or suppressing, but embracing them. To embrace emotional experience, what do, what do you do? I mean, it's easy to say. Well, then this is the like in teaching uh, meditation, this mindfulness, the ability to say. Empty the mind of thought, like the, if you develop awareness around the, the breath, around the, the body, if you actually go to the churning sensation in your guts, like, like if, you, if you're frightened or you're feeling anxious about something and you feel this, this kind of really unpleasant feeling uh, in your abdomen, you can go right to that sensation, you know, with mentally just totally accept the, that, put your attention onto the actual sensation of the churning, uh, anxious feeling. Uh, or the sound of silence, stop the thinking process, you'll stop thinking about it because your, your mind will, will cut off the thought process and you'll be with the actual sensation and see what happens. So then this, you begin to see how the difference between emotional, how you can be feeling an emotion, uh, feeling very upset, and still be not indulging or suppressing it. And this is the way to resolve these kind of emotional habits. No, this is this is very uh, useful kind of information because we, we don't most people aren't aware that they can do this. Like uh, I've told you before about when I had this insight into uh, 
emptiness. And uh, the first year when I was a Samanera, I had this insight, profound insight. And I was alone, fortunately, at this time, in a little kuti in Nongkai. And, and, but the emotional reaction was one of, uh, was, was one of utter despair. So I kind of fell on the floor and, and weeping, I was crying, weeping, and saying, I can't do it. It's too hard, too difficult. I can't do it. And, and I was really in a terrible state. If you'd looked at me, if you'd come in at that time, you would have thought, that's tomato. God, he's a mess. You know, how long has he been meditating? And look at him. He, he's, a, he's a weeping. He never used to weep like that. He used to be a real man. Never. <laughs> now he's just jelly on the floor. But the... <laughs> <laughs> but the, uh, but actually, that was that was just uh, uh, there. Were, you know, that wasn't what was actually taking place. That was a, a reaction. But it was neither an indulgence nor a suppression because there was a an awareness of that. It's like standing and saying, what, what is this weeping jelly on the floor doing, you know? Like, you know this, is, this was a habit, this is the way it looked. So this is why, don't be so hard on each other in this community either, if we fall apart. And, and don't, don't think that, that somebody isn't meditating the right way. Uh, because uh, it may not be as bad as you think. might be actually a good thing. Uh, so, I mean, if you, from just a worldly perspective, you might, might think the worst, because it might look, look awful to, to you. But in terms of once you, once you uh, develop that awareness, and once you trust in that awareness, then, then emotions will happen. You know, they will uh, kind of arise, and you find yourself crying, or you you find you become you become very you, you know because you're not you're no longer using so much uh, re resistance anymore. So so you find maybe you cry more easily than you ever did before over little things. You know, and sometimes we feel incredibly fragile in, in that because the uh, kind of uh, hard armor that we wore before this life uh, is, has been removed, so you're kind of more on the surface. <coughs> but the danger is to think of oneself as fragile. Because we, we know, think, I'm so delicate now, I'm so sensitive, and identify with that. Uh, and, and you become weakened through that. You become a kind of very precious kind of being that, that uh, gets upset very easily. Or, you take refuge in this awareness. Which gives you unshakability. <laughs> you know, it's, it's on, if you begin to really 
cultivated, it's unshakable. Even though the emotions are shaking or, or the body is. So, so don't, uh, this is just uh, an encouragement to you to, uh, to, to, you know, you give up your own kind of ways of looking at life that are very conditioned, but begin to, to investigate experience more uh, kind of, uh, you know, in a, in a very, uh, uh, have, the, have the courage, in a courageous way to really look into experience into the conditioned realm. And then to, like in, in, uh, in Buddhist terms, the refuge in Buddha Dhamma Sangha. What is that? You know, uh, like for me, I have a strong sense of refuge in Buddha Dhamma Sangha. That gives me, uh, I use those terms. To, but I apply them to something, you know, to the reality of an, ex to the present moment. It's not believing in some vague kind of things like Buddha and Dhamma Sangha, but in, in but they're, 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 those particular words remind me of that unshakable state of attentiveness in the present. So, uh, it's a, a time where these kind of teachings are now, um, you know, not all that rare. And uh, because there is a great need for this kind of development in the human, in the, in the human realm. <coughs> you know, if we don't uh, develop this, we, we just, uh, we're stuck in the biases of old cultural habits, ethnic prejudices, racial prejudices, uh, our own kind of foolish, we're just helplessly stuck in the momentum of, of bad habits a lot of the time. There's no way, it just seems like, you know, no way out except to, to take drugs or, or do things to, to just, uh, you know, make it make it less painful or there is this opportunity awaken awareness and the and the uh, and the, the 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 wisdom that that empowers that 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 comes from that so i offer this as a reflection for this evening
to the United States in the, on the 5th and for a month I will uh, be there coming back on the 4th of May no, it's just, uh, this year of 1999 three months have passed already remember 1989 thinking 10 years to 1999 no, 1999 is here. Three months have passed. And there's nine months left. <coughs> so this perception of time, uh, time flies, tempest fugits, and the, and, uh, the aging process uh, is increasingly more obvious. And the uh, conditions change this relentless change in impermanence, transiency of the conditioned realm is something the Buddha uh, pointed to as something to contemplate. Uh, because the, the ability to create perceptions with our mind, we can, we can uh, perceptions have a kind of fixity to them. And so we we can we can get very stuck in how we perceive ourselves or the world or anything, thinking that, that it's a kind of permanent, fixed thing because the perception uh, is it doesn't 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 uh, convey the sense of its changingness. So in uh, Investigation of Dhamma, Dhamma Vijaya, we we contemplating this changingness to break down the tendency to to uh, perceive the world in, with fixed perceptions well, through the biases, uh, the prejudices, the conditioning of our mind. We're we're using a different way, a kind of intuitive uh, awareness. And one way of developing intuitive awareness is to be aware of the changingness of everything. And Nietzsche, 
we can see uh, this in the uh, here at Amravati, the changes that have taken place in the 20, uh, in the uh, 15 years that we've occupied this site. And keep changing and and uh, the people come and go, are born, die, grow up, get old, ordain, disrobe, and so forth. Uh, this changing this is uh, is used as a way of contemplating. Now, uh, contemplating a Nietzsche is 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 not uh, is not not an intellectual uh, experience, uh, but a intuitive one. So sometimes uh, when people tend to see it in terms of of uh, you know every just believing that everything is impermanent because the Buddha said so. Or just thinking that because everything is a Nietzsche it's not worth anything or it's, it's valueless or it's trivial. So we can, we can use uh, the word a Nietzsche as a kind of dismissal of everything and say, well, it's, everything's impermanent and so what? Kind of way of, of using impermanent it's some kind of almost value judgment against the conditioned world rather than opening to the conditioned world. And intuitive awareness is opening the mind, the heart to the conditioned world. Whatever it is, and the conditions are not, we're not opening just to the good conditions, but to all, everything. Because all conditions are impermanent. It's not a matter of and being beautiful or ugly or good or bad, but the, this applies to every every condition. Subtle, whether it's just a thought in the mind or an emotion or a mood or a mountain or the sun or a star in the sky. So you can get a, a feeling for this intuition as a kind of embracing quality of the mind, expansive, limitless. Uh, it's wide. Uh, it, 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 the expansiveness of the mind, embracing phenomena, not with uh, attachment to it, but because that's the way it is. That all conditioned phenomena. And is then accepted for what it is rather than uh, approved of, disapproved of, and judged. And then the, the spiritual experience is realizing the, 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 the space in the mind, the uh, infinite, the unconditioned, the deathless. And that's realizable, not something, it's not just uh, another perception that we use that you have to believe in something called the deathless. But it's, uh, it's real, it's, re it's reality, it's a realization. So encouraging this, this uh, expansiveness of awareness, this intuit use of intuition, 
is quite a, a, a strong, uh, you have to make a strong determination to do it because uh, like most of us are conditioned in the opposite way to analyze, criticize, pass judgments and, and uh, we're very, you know, modern education is very much uh, based on the rational thought on, on uh, being able to analyze and criticize, to make judgments about things, to compare and reason everything, reason everything out. And so that's a function of the mind that's very highly, highly developed in a, in a society such as this one, in that we're all educated people and we've all been conditioned to think in, in, in that way. The thing that, that is a very another startling absence uh, 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 at this time is, is a lack of appreciation for morality. Uh, because uh, it's, it's a time where morality is no longer really understood or valued, except as some kind of maybe club to kind of intimidate you, or something you use uh, you know, if it's politically expedient, or it can be seen as just a kind of oppression, keeping to, you know, like being commanded by God to, to, to keep, uh, to be a moral human being, uh, we can feel, you know, people aren't now feel that they, they don't have that kind of willingness to just be intimidated into, into uh, moral uh, commandments. And so we see what happens without any common moral positioning that we agree on, then we have these endless wars and uh, degenerate problems, the corruption, and and so forth in the societies. So one thing we find with modern capitalism and and the free world, as it's so-called, is that it gets very degenerate because uh, because there's no kind of moral expectations placed on anybody. Uh, it's uh, it's more or less uh, the idea of freedom is to just do what you feel like, follow your heart, do what you want. Uh, I remember when I was a student in, in university, uh, when people were reading Cahil Gibran's The Prophet, that was quite a popular book at the time, and uh, I had this, this beautiful verse, uh, Follow your heart wherever it takes you. <laughs> I remember how many people justified all kinds of of uh, not very skillful activities. <laughs> it's such an attractive thing. Follow your heart, and then uh, you can't do this and you can't do that. <coughs> So I just notice how when you know when we 
when we appeal to, to you know, we give license to, to do what we want and what we like and what we uh, are attracted to, we feel good. If we're inhibited or frustrated, then we feel upset and oppressed. So that that modern life tends towards this more this license, this sense of just do what you feel like, feels good, do it. And uh, remember there was a pop song a few years ago, it feels so good it must be right. <laughs> so, <laughs> so this, uh, we contemplate this, uh, feeling good uh, and feeling oppressed or feeling bad or feeling suffocated or feeling disempowered or feeling unappreciated or feeling, uh, you know, elated, high, happy. And so intuition embraces all these feelings. Uh, like mindfulness, sati, sampatanya, panya, and wisdom. We're developing wisdom. We're not just trying to, to say the world has to follow my desires or I have I wanted I want the world to to let me do what I feel like uh, and and demand all kinds of uh, things from the people around me for my own to, to satisfy my own desires uh, because in that way we never we'll never develop wisdom we just we just get caught into uh, developing habits and a feeling of bitterness and dis and resentment when we're frustrated and not we can't get what we want so we never really grow up we never mature maturity always means a certain amount of sacrifice isn't it like an adult person say when you're talking about maturity it means you're willing to give up personal pleasure, freedom, independence, for the welfare of others. They're like, say, marriage, when you get married, the idea of you're, you're willing to give up your independence to live as a single person to do what you want and to put another person into your life as someone that you must uh, look to and support. <coughs> And that, that always takes a measure of maturity to do that. And, uh, but in modern society, it doesn't even allow marriage to provide much uh, of that ingredient anymore because it's all, so many marriages, uh, you know, that people don't get married with that intention. They just get married to, uh, for, to, make, to feel good. And then when it doesn't feel good, then you divorce. So, so the, uh, but in say in, with intuitive awareness, we're we're contemplating the nature of conditioned phenomena. In monastic life, it's uh, it's like um, it's a very it's a restricting process. Say monastic rules. They're all limitations on behavior and speech. 
and it's uh, conforming to a an agreed traditional uh, vinaya or discipline, so that this this experience of discipline, say, is uh, uh, brings uh, into our consciousness all kinds of of emotions. To 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 not be able to do what you feel like, to not follow your heart, to have to follow a rule, to have to re give up something uh, because it's against the discipline, to to refrain from saying or doing things because it's beyond the, the limits or the boundaries that the discipline allows, things like this, is, uh, is, is a way of, say, it can be an act of oppression, of just kind of brutal uh, kind of conformity, or it can be a way of training, of opening to life. For me, I found it uh, an absolute necessity, the, the discipline, because uh, I wasn't disciplined before I became a monk. wasn't very well disciplined. Too many, too, too much freedom, too many, too, no, no, no boundaries on behavior. Uh, it was following my heart, doing what I wanted. I'd, I'd done that. And the result was, uh, for me, a horrible mental confusion and self-aversion because I ended up doing things that I really felt contempt for, you know, living in a way or act, acting in ways that I personally, you know, couldn't respect but were you know, certainly activities that were considered normal and allowable within the society. Though in terms of, say, self-respect, I found a kind of enormous, diminished sense of self-respect after this kind of libertine, hedonistic life. Because I wasn't living in a way that I respected. So then, uh, remember, at this time I was in the graduate school in University of California in Berkeley, and and I was uh, I was completely enamored with Mahatma Gandhi at the time. I would spend the day I write papers and <coughs> do research on Gandhi, and and uh, well, here's a man really, you know, was a kind of saintly human being who had guts to kind of experiment and go out into life and whose moral sense was, was based on, you know, wisdom, compassion, and, uh, and, and, uh, and renunciation, because he was a real kind of renunciate. And at that, that time, I was living this very hedonistic style of life, which, which was kind of another conflict was my ideals were towards renunciation and my, my actual lifestyle was towards hedonism. So it was, <laughs> wake up in the morning, you look at yourself in the mirror and you think, ooh, what a, 
what a disgusting person. I'm going to hate, hate myself. Then in the uh, becoming a monk, I think because I, I appreciated monastic life, I, I felt it was, you know, I, I love the idea of renunciation, of giving up things, of, uh, of living a, a, a moral life, of, uh, of, of living my life for the welfare of other beings. Things like this would really appeal to me. Just a kind of endless selfish life based on pleasure and doing, following my heart, do it as I wanted in the, in the moment was, uh, was not, uh, you know, not, a, not anything I could respect. And so I did find, you know, the kind of role models that appealed to me were more renunciate ones. And in the monastery, when I went to Thailand, I remember I stayed in several monasteries before I found uh, Ajahn Chah. And I deliberately chose Ajahn Chah. I could have chosen other, other, many other places that would have been easier to live in. I was offered really kind of comfy possibilities, you know, they set me up a nice little little chalet and I could, you know, live quite a nice life uh, uh, without all this, this, uh, this Thai forest tradition and the, the kind of Tudong style and whatnot. But I really wasn't interested in that. I didn't, I didn't join the Sangha to, to be, live like a, you know, like a prince or like a, uh, a, 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 like a pet poodle of some sort. So I, I really wanted to, to develop uh, a life that, that I respected. When I went to Wat Pa Pong, uh, that was the monastery that I really felt. That, that's what I think, I felt, that's what a monastery should be like. It seemed to fit my ideal, my own in, kind of internal vision of, of uh, monasticism. I was really overjoyed to see it, you know, to see it actually existing. Because I was not very impressed with most of the monasteries I'd seen up until then. They were not particularly inspiring places from that, that I wanted to live in. <coughs> now living in, a, in, in such a monastery was, uh, was a challenge because, of the, you know, not only was I living a life of restraint and, and dis monastic discipline, but I, I was having to readjust everything, learn a new language, uh, eat food I'd never eaten before, uh, a different culture, different climate. Everything was, was new and different. And there was, I didn't have any friends there, didn't know anybody. Uh, so I had no ties uh, to, uh, there were a lot of ties there, but I didn't have any ties. 
had <laughs> I didn't have any ties to anything at in the in the actual place. And so the um, but I did have uh, kind of uh, appreciation of faith in Lumpur Cha. He did it seem to me to be someone that I was willing to trust. So over the years there, I lived in, in uh, Northeast Thailand, that the, the process of training, living in, in a restrained way took place. And during this time I did go through all enormous kind of swings of emotional experience because I'd get so frustrated sometimes because I wouldn't understand a lot, of, a lot of what was going on. I'd feel I was being looked down on by some of the monks. I'd feel that I was being made fun of a lot of the time. I'd feel uh, I'd get paranoid. Uh, I'd feel, you know, the kind of monks were on, you know, were trying to put me down or disempower me or and go through all kinds of these these kind of emotions. I'd feel rebellious. Uh, sometimes I just detest the life, hate every monk I saw. And uh, I certainly feel a lot of aversion and anger towards Ajahn Chah. So he, sometimes he'd keep us up all night. I remember one time just and a party mocha. Uh, <laughs> Who's your friend? <laughs> a party mocha. We had uh, we had the um, there was this old monk that came, an old friend of Ajahn Chah's came to stay, and he was a really garrulous old monk. He just no, when once he started talking, he'd never stop, and so he'd just go on and on, and and uh, so usually do the party mocha, say about seven o'clock in the evening, and then uh, we chanted that, and so that was I managed to be patient enough to sit through the party mocha, and usually they'd uh, excuse, you know, after party mocha we'd we'd. Uh, do we'd, uh, we'd leave, but we had to wait for the for Ajahn Chah uh, to give us permission to leave. So I was sitting there waiting for Lumpur Chah to say we can go. So it's eight o'clock. We finished the party mocha, and then Ajahn Chah started chit chatting with this old monk. And they were just carrying on talking about just the two of them, nine o'clock, ten o'clock. <laughs> By this time I was furious. <laughs> Eleven o'clock. <laughs> and then I noticed Lung Pacha was looking at me sometimes. I must have been red in the face. So, so then, uh, twelve o'clock. Really, by this time I had to, you know, get up several times uh, when calls to nature. But I was determined I wasn't going to give up. So I went back, 
And then, uh, and finally about three in the morning, and here the, here the Alung Pacha and this old monk were just carrying on having a wonderful time, laughing, telling jokes. I couldn't understand most of what they were talking about. But, but I went through a whole, through incredible anger and rage. And then, but by staying with it and by really accepting that feeling, about, I noticed that about like one or two o'clock it began to kind of fade out and then it just completely dropped and I was sitting there till three o'clock in a completely happy state. So when, and, and when uh, Ajahn Chah dismissed this, I didn't even want to go. <laughs> so it actually put me through a kind of ordeal, but it was, I wouldn't have known that if I just followed my, what I felt like at the time. You know, because I had very good reasons. I was reasonable, he wasn't being reasonable, uh, as far as I was concerned. <laughs> so, uh, but I did see how, how the, uh, that uh, the resistance, the, you know, the, this time waiting to go, uh, anticipating the time, uh, feeling put on, feeling that, that he's just kind of torturing me deliberately. Of course, everybody was, was involved in it. I wasn't, you know, there, you know, the place had about 50 monks there, so I wasn't the only one. But it, but one takes everything quite personally. Then, uh, then it dropped. Well, that was quite, quite a revelation to me because I wasn't expecting that. And I felt, I felt a really, a sense of real peace too. When I, when I let go, when I learned to relax in the midst of the, of a scene that before I was resisting and uh, resenting. So these are the, the things you learn through, through say, discipline, restraint, renunciation. If you, if you just live a life based on, on just following your desires, your, and, and reinforcing your habits, and making endless demands on life. Like we all want to be understood, and loved, and appreciated, and respected, and empowered, and and, and all these kind of words that people use these days, we, we kind of innocently demand from life, making, making demands that, 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 that me, that you have to respect me, you have to... Uh, think of my feelings and, and uh, not, not oppress me, not disempower me not frustrate me, <clears throat> then one, if one just follows such thoughts, you, you'll never develop into a spiritual life. You'll, you'll always be one who has to make life, you have to control life for your own ends. So the, the liberation is, uh, isn't through getting what you want or making endless demands in life, um, 
support, respect, and encourage, and love you, and that, but in your ability to adapt and to learn, and learning how to relax, to, to stop resisting, to, to learn to, to let go. And the thing with the monastic, with the, the Wat Bap home was that even though sometimes I hated the place, and, you know, because I felt, I felt imprisoned and, and uh, oppressed, Sometimes I'd get really you know, like, this big brother's watching you feeling. I'd get obsessed with Ajahn Chai. I remember going through a, this kind of paranoia, thinking, he's everywhere. Lung Po Chau's everywhere. He can see everything. And he's behind every bush, every, every building. He's, he's looking from this, from that place. Everything is Lung Po Chau, Lung Po Chau. And 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 so he was a very strong uh, person, but and you know he had a very um, you know he he had a tremendous kind of uh, charisma, charismatic quality, and so it, when you get paranoid, then you you start seeing it as, as an evil force. And just this big brother, Lung Po Cha, is watching you, and and you feel the, the kind of you're you're in you know in a prison camp. But when I really contemplated this feeling, I could see it was something I was creating, because when I really investigated my life as a monk, what was it about? What was I expected to do in that monastery? To do good and refrain from doing evil. I was, uh, they, they were, the, the, the demands made on me were, to me, were, were not uh, tyrannical when I really looked at it. And the, and the kind of uh, quality of life there, even though on the level of material world it was very basic, it was very primitive monastery actually, very basic, but in, in terms of the quality of life, was so is so uh, based on such kind of uh, mutual help, uh, uh, on moral responsibility, on developing meditation, on spiritual development, on loving kindness, compassion. So I mean, so where can you, where in this planet can you find such a place as this, where, where all this is? Uh, and it was all given to me. I wasn't didn't have to pay any fees. That's why uh, coming to the West, you know, you don't want to because everything was given me so freely in Thailand that uh, you know you you can't you don't want to. You want to do that here in, in in Britain to to give the opportunities that were made so freely available for us as foreigners in Thailand and make them possible here.
it also brought up so many kind of childish emotions. Uh, just uh, because even though I was 33 years old at the time, uh, emotionally I was still very childish in many ways, very immature on the emotional level. And so living in a, in a monastic community uh, it would bring up all kinds of, of kind of childish reactions. And so then in the, in the life there, I began, to, I began to just notice these things and, and uh, through the mindfulness, practice of mindfulness, be able to they let go of the causes through this investigation of the, the Four Noble Truths and, the, and recognizing the causes of suffering. I found living, uh, once I kind of adapted to the life, uh, uh, and living in a Thai monastery, I found actually it was uh, quite, e quite a pleasant life and, a, and an easy one, rather than a difficult one. But not easy in the sense of uh, doing just you know following uh, the easiest or the the easiest way to do something but it was simple it had a, the simplicity a style to it that was simple and clear and good and and one in which you began to get perspective on your own you know what personality is and what your various uh, what desire is what fear is and so, like here at Amarvati, trying to to uh, develop this community into a reflective community, on the uh, to begin to see the causes of suffering, uh, and to realize non-suffering. So the, the, the statement: the Buddha taught only two things: suffering and the end of suffering. Contemplate that. Suffering. He thought, he said, suffering is the first noble truth and the end of suffering. So in terms of, of direct experience, uh, then suffering is, is uh, something to, to awaken to, to understand suffering you understand it, you have to accept it. You're not trying, not resist it, but to open to it. It's like the key to the door, the clue to the, to the path of non-suffering. So suffering isn't something to, to despise or to blame or to uh, resent, but it's something to awaken to, understand. Embrace, and then using that sense of intuitive uh, an intuition embraces suffering. It's not, it's not resisting it. And then, then through that understanding, we realize 
the, the we 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 observe the causes, the attachment to desire, and we 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 realize non-suffering. Non-suffering is like this. So in in every moment of our lives, say, you do you su you think you suffer all the time, twenty-four hours a day, or do you, are you really aware when there's non-suffering? Or are you only just caught in habitual resistance to suffering? Or, or seeking happiness? Seeking happiness is, is always trying to avoid suffering by seeking happiness. But say in the monastic life, such as we live, we're not here to seek happiness. And re, re, the, the, the disciplined life, the renunciate life, isn't you know, is, is not is obviously uh, moving away from that tendency to go around looking for happiness as just a, as the goal of our life. And then the the suffering that we have here uh, is to be seen as uh, as uh, as a noble truth rather than something uh, that we blame on somebody else. Then the then non-suffering. So when you when you're when you're intuitively uh, when you're in that state of intuitive awareness, do you know when non-suffering when there's non-suffering, and when there is suffering? Now, in that, in term, getting back to the to the perceptions of of the mind, we can think, "I am a person that suffers all the time." So, so then, that that you know, I am I am a person with these kind of problems, and uh, and therefore uh, I'm, you know, I'm a miserable, neurotic mess, and I've got to do all kinds of things to, to get rid of these things in order to become a normal person, that, that whole assumption of a self, uh, if never seen through and, and grasped as your kind of uh, modus operandi, then, then uh, of course you're going to experience life always as in, in the forms of, of, of being somebody who suffers. <coughs> Because the the conditions are there that that uh, that you know you're blinding yourself by operating from a place of ignorance and not understanding dhamma. But when you awaken to even that perception of I am a person, I am this the five khandhas, I am this body, this type, this personality. That, and, and then we, we can see it in terms of what's wrong. And many of us are very conditioned to perceive ourselves through our faults. And that what's wrong with us is more real than what's right with us, for many people. And then, uh, and then we, we, we think, we, we, when we grasp that perception, then we tend to experience life in that way. 
So even though there's non-suffering, we don't even know it because we're, we're convinced that, we, that we're suffering all the time. So in the, as you settle into monastic life, you stop resisting it and learning to live within its simple boundaries. Uh, it's like you're, you're relaxing into a form, into a vehicle. Monastic life is like a, like a vehicle it carries you. And, and if you learn to relax in this vehicle, then, then, you be, then you have the ability to awaken to suffering and non-suffering as, as it happens. So in, uh, say in, in daily life, this, this, uh, when I'm heedless, I suffer. When I'm not heedless, I don't suffer. I realize I don't have to suffer because because I know I know the way of non-suffering. But still, one forgets this and gets caught up in because you're tested in so many ways in the in the in the in this human realm. You have you put through a lot of uh, ordeals. At least I have been. Well, meant much of it. Monastic life has been like an ordeal, put through so many tests, um, where, where even though the the insight came quite quickly uh, in the beginning, to actually trust in it and to apply it takes is an ongoing challenge. But as you keep observing this, then it becomes very, very clear. What this is the path. This is not the path. Very, very precise. There, so the way of non-suffering isn't just some kind of vague state of hopefully you'll you'll achieve in the end of your life. But it's quite a clear. It's the clarity of the mind.